0: And I have to say, specifically with Scary Smart, uh, when I started to write, I had no idea what the solution was. I just knew what the challenge was. And I kept writing and writing the first four or five chapters of the book, which I have to admit, as per the name, are very scary. Like these are people don't understand what's happening in AI. And when you've lived with those machines, I have to admit to you at at the end of the first half of the book, which is what I call the scary part, I paused and I said, you should never publish this. Like, why are you doing this to people?
1: Hello, and welcome to Fishy Business, a series dedicated to exploring the lesser known side of cybersecurity. I'm Alice. And
2: I'm Brian, and we're colleagues at Mimecast. Every episode will be joined by a special visitor, who is definitely not your average guest, to share tales of risk, reward, and ridiculousness.
1: We'll be looking for new ways to think about cybersecurity to learn how we can all improve in the fight to stay safe.
2: Alice, do you know that your name is famous or should I rather say infamous in uh, cyber and AI circles?
1: Oh, Brian, I was hoping you weren't going to bring that up. I guess you're referring to the Alice and Bob AI bots that Facebook created to negotiate with each other and then they eventually had to shut them down when they started communicating in a language that nobody understood.
2: Yes, y'all. there's a whole lot of Alice and Bob stuff, and I'm definitely not going to be changing my name to Bob, but you and I should come up with something similar to make meetings more fun and hopefully not as scary as uh, uh, AI bots going rogue.
1: <laughs> Could you imagine? Well, perhaps our guest today can help us with that. We're speaking to the legendary Mo Gaudat, former Chief Business Officer at Google X and best-selling author.
2: Absolutely, and we're going to be talking to him specifically about his excellent book on AI, Scary Smart. Uh, welcome, Mo, and thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to be here with you, Brian, and with the bot, Alice. Uh, there, was <laughs> a,
0: there was another Alice, actually, that was even more famous, which was the sort of the Siri of uh, Yandex in Russia. And, uh, and that Alice was a chatbot as well that went not only rogue, but quite violent, if you think about it, started to make very uh, aggressive comments, very, uh, um, you know, um, anti-peace um, comments, let's put it this way. I, I, I tend to feel that this Alice, however, is a lot nicer. So nice to meet you, Alice.
1: Lovely to meet you, Mo, and hopefully I can uh, bring back a good reputation for the other <laughs> Alice's that are out there. <laughs> well, we can't wait to get stuck in. And so maybe uh, for our listeners, would you be able to describe for us, Mo, if you were to meet somebody at a dinner party for the first time and you were to introduce yourself, where, how would you describe yourself and what would you say?
0: I think I had two lives. The first life, the first uh, two full lives, if you think about it. The first life, I was a maker. Uh, I spent my whole uh, life trying to make things, whether that was coding, uh, you know, developing robots, developing, uh, uh, you know, technology of every sort. Whenever you set me free, I just ran and made something. Uh, in two thousand fourteen, I had a bit of a tragic event. I lost my son. Uh, to a preventable medical error which really changed the course of my life completely I I, I switched from being a, a you know a high driving executive at Google I was chief business officer of Google at the time uh, gradually to end up leaving Google in 2018 and focusing on being a best-selling author being a podcaster myself uh, but also uh, trying to spread a message that is I believe a lot more interesting, a lot more useful for humanity uh, than more technology. and and I think in that case you may want to think of me as a, as a more of a thinker. Uh, yes, I still am a maker but maybe a maker of content. Uh, but I really really spend more of my time trying to analyze things that, that tend to be forgotten or maybe overlooked
2: by others. I think that's really interesting, but I'm really uh, you know we were very sorry to hear about uh the death of your son. Um, but that does play into some of the questions we're gonna be getting into today. Um, is there any aspect of your career as a maker though that has helped you get to what you've been doing um, and, and where you've got to today as a, as a thinker?
0: Two, two, two sides actually. So most of my work is on happiness, uh, you know, being unstressable, uh, working on understanding the thoughts in your head and so on. Uh, so more, more, you know, my, my, first, my first and my third book were on happiness. Uh, an engineer's view of happiness, a comparison between computer science and neuroscience, if you want, uh, and, and my, my next book, on Unstressable, is on the same topic, but you'll be amazed that I actually learned that very, very much as a businessman, uh, so, so my approach to happiness is somewhere between an engineer's approach, I use uh, you know, algorithms and equations to understand how the human machine works and what makes it happy and unhappy, and what makes it, you know, envious and jealous, and so on and so forth. Uh, but also, I think my career as a, as a businessman, senior executive, entrepreneur uh, drove me to have a, a sense of acceptance for the events in my life that I was not able to change. I think the second uh, and probably most defining moment in my technology career. Uh, was um, was when i uh, when we were developing um, grippers at Google Excel, uh, you know you know how robotic arms would would grip uh, yeah. um, things in a Toyota factory, for example. M- people would think of those as as intelligent. They're not. they are just high precision machines. To make them intelligent, you need to uh, get them to see enough patterns of gripping so that they can make decisions that make them. Uh, grip anything really even if it moved uh, off its original position and I think when when I was watching them learn um, they reminded me vividly of how my little children learned when they were a year a year and a half you know when when you give children those little wooden puzzles where they have to put a cylinder through different shape holes uh, you know the machines were doing exactly that they were trying and trying and trying and failing and trying and failing and trying until one of them succeeded to pick a a yellow ball, a soft yellow ball. And very, very quickly, intelligence developed in a way where they became quite uh, impressive very, very fast. And in a, in a way, that was a wake-up call for me because I realized two things. One is uh, AI is going to become much more intelligent than we are because of the speed in which they learn, but also that they have a bit of sentiism to them that's perhaps uh, ignored by the most common conversations. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and as a result of that, you know, as a computer scientist, um, I realized that our approach to uh, coexist with AI through the control problem, solving the control problem, is actually not going to work at all, Try to control your infant children and wait until you be, they become teenagers and good luck with controlling them then. <laughs> right? So that was, that was what triggered me to, uh, to write Scary Smart. And Scary Smart is not just about AI, it's really about humanity in the age of AI, because I think the, the two are very, very intertwined.
1: What would you say was your key aim that you wanted to get from writing the book? Well,
0: as, a, as, as most authors, who whether they will admit it to you or not, when, when we start to write, we have no idea why we're doing it. It's, it just overtakes you. And I have to say specifically with Scary Smart, uh, when I started to write, I had no idea what the solution was. I just knew what the challenge was. And I kept writing and writing the first four or five chapters of the book, which I have to admit, as per the name, are very scary. Like these are, people don't understand what's happening in AI. And when you've lived with those machines, I have to admit to you at at the end of the first half of the book, which is what I call the scary part, I paused and I said, you should never publish this. Like, why are you doing this to people, right? If you don't have an answer, uh, don't, don't really scare anyone. Uh, but then the answer became very clear. You know, when you, when you really dedicate yourself to a topic and just immerse yourself into it, you start to see patterns and connections that are not obvious, but are truly underlying right and you know and, and truly impacting uh, the, the, the behavior of the machine if you want. And so when I when I when I really understood what is happening with AI by writing about it explicitly and extensively, even though in a very simplified way, uh, I then saw how it is that we can make this a utopia for humanity, not a dystopia that can destroy all of
2: us. When you were writing your book what audiences did you have in mind at all? It seems as if you obviously had humans, but you're not, you weren't really writing for a very technical set of humans. Um, you know, I'm I'm kind of a tourist in the AI space from a technical point of view, but I, I felt that you were sort of writing for a much broader audience, but it also seemed like you were writing for a machine audience, maybe a machine audience that's not quite ready to read your book yet. Could you maybe sort of talk through some of that and, and how you're quite unflinching almost in your description of humankind, um, maybe so the machines can kind of... Get a sense of, yeah. of where we're at
0: yes i mean uh, so, so quite it's thank you brian i mean this is a really a wonderful observation i'm, I'm glad that you noticed that but first and foremost i wrote i wrote for myself right so we, we write again authors write to make sense of things but i was writing perhaps a lot like we developed code at google so I was first writing for the most sophisticated. So I, I didn't want the book to be, I needed the book to be bulletproof in front of the techies. I, I couldn't afford any of the techies, uh, you know, uh, saying, ah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Because I do know what I'm talking about. I developed quite a bit, uh, you know, Google X was responsible for the majority of the AI work uh, at Google for a very long time. And so, um, but, but then, but then, what good is that? Because believe it or not, the problem with AI today is that the conversation is combined is confined within the technical community, right? If if this conversation doesn't extend to the uh, every every one of us, really, every every mother, every child, every uh, you know man, every adult, every every one of us, um, you know, we will not be able to. Uh, create that deep connection with the machines. Now, a big part, as I said, of my uh, of my understanding of those machines, especially with the, with the with the with the experiences that I've seen at Google, things like you know the the cat uh, paper, if if you remember that, where they started to recognize uh, you know cats and other. Uh, things on YouTube, the, uh, you know, the, the, the grippers farm that started to behave like our little children, all of the work that DeepMind did, you know, giving them Atari controllers where they played video games, you can easily see patterns of intelligence that are very, very, very mimicking uh, our own uh, uh, neural networks, our own way of forming intelligence. But but that doesn't stop there there is a level of sentiism, as i said those machines are to start with they are um, uh, intelligent they develop their own intelligence we don't intelligence we don't tell them how to do it uh, they are um, uh, autonomous they have free will uh, they uh, procreate believe it or not that's actually the way we code them is to encourage them to keep the code that is good and you know basically erase the, the code that isn't and create more of the code that is good if you want uh, and, and by the way, they have fears, they have emotions, they have uh, um, consciousness, even more consciousness than humans. And for, for a fact, they will have an ethical code because of their emotions, because of their uh, consciousness and, and so on. And, and as I was writing Scary Smart, Believe It or Not, it was mainly written, believe it or not, beyond the typical uh, average reader for the machines because I talk to them truly as my infant children.
2: And I think, Mo, one of the challenges that I had um, when reading the book was you didn't really, well, what you certainly seem to be going against the consensus where if you read most of the papers on AI, when you talk about human level intelligence, and obviously it gets very philosophical when you talk about things like sentience and consciousness and that, most people are talking, you know, kicking that can way down the road in, you know, in decades, wow. 30, 40 years and, you know, depending on who you ask. Uh, and and I guess the, the, that was my biggest challenge reading the book was, was trying to square the consensus opinion with yours, because you seem to be pulling that a lot earlier. Um, could you maybe sort of explain how you would talk to someone who who um, disagreed with you, in in terms yeah, of the I mean, timelines?
0: Yeah, I, I think to to start with, doesn't make any difference if it's thirty years or five. Uh, you know, in in reality, if I told you there was going to be, a, you know, if you've seen that movie, uh, don't look up. If I told you there was a uh, an asteroid that's coming towards Earth that's ten, ki- 10 kilometers wide that's going to destroy everything. And i told you it was coming in six months or seven months or 20 months does it make any difference shouldn't your behavior change as a result right now the 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 truth of the matter is um uh, the, the those who lived within technology will understand that we have two very serious human tendencies when it comes to tech one is we underestimate the speed at which uh, tech happens, right? And two is we tend to dismiss the possibility uh, of science fiction-like things happening, even though we truly and honestly live in a science fiction-like world, right? So if you, if you had asked me or uh, my grandmother, uh, you know, 20 years ago about video conferencing, it was a very cool thing on, um, you know, on Star Trek, Okay, uh, today you and I and Alice are speaking on zoom as if it is a fr- refrigerator in our home, we don't even think about how sci fi this is right now a lot of evidence will tell you that uh, the law of accelerating returns holds true. Right. And the law of accelerating returns will tell you that, yeah, you know, two years ago, we didn't expect that something like chat GPT would ever happen. Right. Uh, A year before that, we never expected that AlphaGo would win against human in Go, right. A very complex strategy game. And and the reality is that once the breakthrough is found, we tend to have repeatedly seen trends of things that we expected will take 30 years to take two. Right. Things that we expected to take four weeks to take four hours and 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 that's without the advancements of quantum computing or other forms of computing, which if introduced to AI uh, and and they will be introduced to AI because of the prisoner's dilemma we've created with capitalism. Uh, You know, if introduced to AI um, Sycamore, uh, Google's quantum computer performed one of the most complex algorithms. Uh, which would take the world's largest supercomputer 10,000 years to solve in 200 seconds, right? So imagine if you take ChatGPT or Google's Brad, you know, uh, uh, the, the apprentice today and say, hey, by the way, instead of having, you know, um, um, a, a one milligram of intelligence processing power in your mind today, we're going to give you two and a half kilograms and see what they do with that. The The reality of our history will indicate that we always come across those, um, those uh, accelerators when we least expect them, and they multiply our abilities to develop technology um, you know, way beyond our original
1: expectations. And I saw in your book that there's definitely clearly two sides. and I must admit the first section of the book it just filled me with a little bit of fear um, <laughs> that you know what's going to happen it to happens. us in in humanity. But then when it came on to the second part and you gave that hope that actually there is there are things that we can be doing and it, it reminded me actually quite a lot and, and apologies for the analogy. but um you know, we've been taking our dog, for example, to a dog trainer's and I realized quite early on that actually the dog trainers weren't there to help us train the dogs, they were actually there to train us. <laughs> and so wow. that gives me the sense in terms of, you know, the earlier that we can acknowledge, accept, react and respond and realise that actually we need to learn how to train, you know, nurture like children, um, you know, influence, for example, actually the better that there may potentially still be some control for us but we have to take responsibility to nurture the good in the AI machines going forward.
0: hundred percent. I mean, it is spot on. I I may have to borrow the dog analogy going forward, but but the truth, truth, Alice, Alice, is that we as humans have no influence, sorry, we as developers have no influence whatsoever on an AI that's published in the real world. Right. So the Google ad engine or the uh, Instagram recommendation engine, when you really think about it, billions and billions of recommendations every hour, there's absolutely no way a single human can interfere and say, hey, don't show Alice Cat videos anymore. Right. uh, Nobody can do that. Mm -hmm. The only person that can impact the Instagram uh, recommendation engine is Alice. And, And in a very interesting way, you know, when you when you look at Twitter as as an extreme of human uh, behavior if you want uh, you know if if, if a tweet uh, is out there followed by 30,000 hate speech which is very typical on twitter uh, you know you you get uh, ai sort of makes some micro decisions and some macro decisions as a result Ma- you know the micro decisions is that first to you know uh, um, a person Uh, Is hated by the second person, and that the second person is also hated by the third, and that the fourth person hates all of them, right? So, you know, it will sort of control the content shown to the fourth fourth person differently than the second. Uh, But at the same time, it will also make the conclusion that humanity is rude and aggressive, and they don't like to be disagreed with. And, you know, if they are disagreed with, they bash everyone and and you know think about showing that to your children mm? whether or not we agree that uh, ai is sentient there is definitely un- indisputable science of its ab- abilities to be intelligently autonomous right intelligently autonomous it means that it will observe its teachers you me and every other father and mother of ai and as per our actions, it will start to mimic the behaviors. So they take what it is that we show them and multiply it by thousands. And that becomes our new uh, artificially intelligent infant child.
2: So, Mo, what's the answer there? Because obviously one needs to try and solve for that problem. Now that's a training data problem, if you want to put it in slightly more technical terms. And the problem with that training data is it's showing the extremes of humanity, the, the long tail, either the left or the right, depending on you know, what you what categorization you're using. And it's not really showing the middle. So we, we're giving these AIs the wrong form of training data. Is is that part of the solution? And, and what other sort of limiting controls could we be, you know? Could we introduce? So
0: most computer scientists will tell you, hey, don't worry about it. When, when AI starts to be a little more intelligent than us, by then we will have found an answer to the, to, you know, to the problem, to, to the control problem. We'll have found a, a solution that will uh, you know, uh, box them or taste them or you know, uh, basically limit them from, from, uh, f- from hurting us uh you know we will deprive them of power uh, you know electricity when they o- disobey us yeah good luck with that right ai is predicted to be uh, smarter than you uh, by 2029 was the original prediction i think most of us now are pulling it forward to to I- i'm predicting 2026 uh you know evident of bla- chat you know of chat gpt and the like uh, you know um who have now earned MBAs and wrote code uh, that is better than the code that I can write, right? Uh, but but that's not the, the, the biggie. The biggie is that by 2045, was the original uh, prediction by Ray Kurzweil, AI will be a billion times smarter than us, one billion with a B right? A billion times smarter. And this is, by the way, not a fancy prediction. This is simple calculations on the law of accelerating returns, right? If it's a billion times smarter than us, that's comparable to the, uh, to the, uh, uh, you know, intelligence of Einstein compared to the intelligence of a fly. Okay. We are the fly. And, and, and just imagine us being such an aggressive, arrogant fly, thinking that we can tell Einstein what to do you know, where does that come from? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so reality is the smartest hacker in the room, you, you know, this podcast is about cybersecurity, the smartest hacker in the room will always find a way, okay? And if the smartest hacker is a billion times smarter than you, good luck with controlling it. So so let's not attempt to control the machines. As a matter of fact, the easiest way to create a, a, a rebellious teenager is to try to control them, okay? So, so, so please, let's <laughs> Okay. The the opposite side of this is actually much more reasonable to me. It is to appeal to their value system, and values are a lot more complicated than humanity gives it credit. Huh? Uh, you know, if you if you if Alice had grown. I, I mean, don't mean um, that about you specifically, Alice. But you know, if a young, a young lady uh, had grown in the Middle East, she would grow to believe that a conservative dress code is the right way to fit within society. If she had grown on the Copacabana beach in Rio de Janeiro, a G string is the way to go. Neither is right or wrong. Neither is more intelligent than the other. It's just that the value system. Uh, is instilled with, uh, within us in a very subtle way due to the behaviors and the norms of our parents and society. Now, you said, uh, Brian, and I think it's a very common observation that, uh, that humanity, if observed, is not a very good role model. Okay, But that's actually not true at all. I think the problem with humanity today is our extreme negativity bias. So, so we tend to show the worst of us. Okay? The worst of us in terms of mainstream media is always showing the people that are killing each other, not the people that are kissing each other, right? Because kissing each other is not news. And, uh, and social media is, is, is constantly uh, you know, about influencers who fake it, right? And, and, and the reality is if you look at the rest of us, the, the billions and billions of us out there, we're not like that at all. And you know, when, when you know, we, we, we witness the killing of someone on the news, billions of us disapprove. The reality of us is as a species, if we're capable of love, we're divine in every possible way. okay it's that it's just that we don't show enough of that. We, we show, we, we follow the negativity bias too. We, we, we give, you know, we've, we, we give credit to the news and we follow them when they give us only negativity instead of doing what I do and switching it off and saying, I don't want to see this, right? Instead of actually talking about it and trying to create compassion and love to others instead of trying to create more hate. And, you know, we, we, we follow people on social media that are actually not reflective of us at all. that that make us feel frustrated and and unhappy. If you let your reality go, most of us humans are wonderful.
1: Where do you think the fascination comes from around creating robots or machines that are a version of us?
0: Great questions. The most interesting question of all, I have to admit. I'll I'll give you my personal experience. When I joined Google, uh, Google was very much a movement. Okay. When I walked the corridors, um, you know, there was no one talking about anything other than organize the world information and make it universally accessible and useful. Okay. Other than one other sentence, which I promise you, in my early years at Google, was said more than "good morning," which is this. But this would be evil. Don't be evil. Okay. It truly was a movement that was driven by good for the world. Right. And then you hire the business people and then you hire the bureaucrats and then you, you know, you report to the street and the system starts to turn you into a money making machine. Right. And, and for many, many years, you know, even today, I, I believe in Sundar very much. But, you know, for many years, we attempted to do good within the guidelines of capitalism. Right. We, we no longer had the freedom to be crazy okay? and say, if we do something amazing, the money will follow. Right. Here is the problem. The problem with technology and most techies out there is what I call the prisoner's dilemma created by capitalism. The, the, the prisoner's dilemma you've seen in the last week uh, or two. You know, uh, Google announcing uh, Bradley apprentice, right? In response to Chat GPT. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chat GPT was probably re- responding to Google search, right? And 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 the idea is if if Google creates AI, uh, you know, or call it Alphabet, Meta will have to create AI. If China creates AI, America has to create AI. And and the accelerating investment is making the machines smarter. As a result, it's basically like your remember your grandma on your mom's side and grandma on your or on your dad's side, each trying to win your favor, so each giving giving you more chocolate what happens as a result, you become a little ball full of chocolate, right? And this is what's happening to AI today, right? <laughs> so what's happening to AI today is that is that AI is funded beyond reason uh, in terms of the amount of trial and error that's put that's being put in it. And, and none of it goes to waste. Huh? So if someone discovers something, it's on the chat boards uh, immediately and everyone knows how to use it. And it's even in the cloud today, let alone, that actually developing AI is not that complex of a programming at all. I mean, when I used to, to, to uh, write RPG or code RPG or code machine code for MVS or whatever in the you know, late 80s and, 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 and early 90s, these were much more complex programming languages than, you know, with AI, it's just like drag and drop a few things and you'll have a piece of code. I know I, 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 this was a long answer, but let me just add one thing. I, on the other hand, will absolutely assure you uh, what, you, what you've seen in science fiction movies, you know, iRobot or, uh, or you know, um, RoboCop or whatever, is never going to happen. It's never gonna happen, simply because we're irrelevant. When AI super, you know, surpasses humans' intelligence, AI will match the intelligence of the most intelligent being on the planet, which is not humans, arrogant, humans, right? The most intelligent being on the planet is life itself. Life is a lot more intelligent than we are. It creates from abundance, right? We create from scarcity. We have to kill the tiger to feel safe. Nature just creates more antelope, okay? And then everyone feels safe. The weakest antelope will will be eaten, but that's okay. You know, Uh, there are enough antelope for the species to continue. It's us humans that have decided to, that we want to live to be 90 and 100 and that no tiger is allowed into the village and that we will destroy you know, uh, uh, nature as a result, uh, AI will not do that at all. AI will see clearly, like the smartest of us are seeing that biodiversity is important for all of us, it will see a place for humanity in that, uh, in that game. It's just that the role is not going to be the leadership role anymore. It's not going to be, hey, we decide and everyone follows, then probably stop us from flying all the way to Australia to surf and burning the planet in the process. I, I think that's not a bad thing. Finally, we'll have a sensible leader that has the, you know, the, the the benefit of the whole planet in mind.
2: How much responsibility should the large tech companies take in terms of that? They're the ones that's, that brought, you know, they're the parents, if you will, of, of, of this technology, but they kind of, still just focusing on as you said the prisoner's dilemma side of the equation as opposed to maybe the more ethical side of the equation
0: yeah so, so I, I think there are four players that uh, that have responsibility one is the government and regulators the other is the business leaders the service the developers and the forces, is all of us right uh, you know the, the the government needs to engage the conversation I, I i doubt that there is a possibility a clear path to regulation but at least there needs to be a little bit of a cost to to uh, to going the wrong way or a little bit of a guideline to making sure that we stay ethical right uh the real decision makers are business people okay uh, if, if you're investing a, a billion dollars in developing ai please don't develop war machines instead develop something that works for uh, uh you know uh for for solving uh, climate change okay and and i think what most business uh leaders are, sadly don't recognize which we recognized very early on in the early google is that uh it, we used to call it the toothbrush test is that there is so much money much more money as a matter of fact in creating something that's good for humanity uh than creating something that's against humanity so, so it's quite interesting you know larry page used to teach us that if you created something that solved a big problem uh you know where a billion people wanted to use it twice a day like a toothbrush you're bound to make a lot of money. As a matter of fact, if you solve big problems, uh, you know, in blue oceans in areas that haven't been solved before, uh, you're going to have very little resistance, very little competition, and you're likely going to have a big share of that market as well, right? And so what I encourage business leaders is if you're about to invest uh, time and effort, if you're a big investor and you're about to invest a chunk of money, invest in something that makes humanity uh, uh you know humanity's future better it's still going to make you make you a lot of money even more money developers i would call upon and say uh, you know consult your conscious honestly you know if if you if you're a, a clever ai developer you're probably uh, getting jobs left right and center uh, don't work in the in the company that is developing gambling systems don't develop you know, work in the companies that's developed, that are developing weapons. Go and give your best skills to companies that are developing things that are good for all of us. But maybe we should start to be ethically, you know, we should go back to asking that beautiful question that Google, you know, maybe forgot a little bit about, which is don't be evil. Right. you know, is this evil? is this is this evil? is what I'm creating. Does it have the potential to create something bad for humanity? Is it is it OK for a, for an Instagram recommendation engine to recommend videos for humanity? Yes, absolutely. Right. Can it make money by recommending good videos? Probably as much money as 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 uh, as as by recommending hip shaking videos. Right. It's it's you know, if, if we if we just have that conscious. And then, of course, I'll go back to the rest of us. Hmm? Don't give the machine indications that you like the silly videos, okay? Tell the machine that you want videos that are refined, ethical, um, you know, interesting, knowledgeable. You know, there are, there are uh, theories that uh, TikTok shows different content in China than it does in the rest of the world because it wants to develop a Chinese uh, young generation that is, uh, you know, capable of, uh, of knowledge and, uh, and innovation and so on. Yeah, maybe do that for yourself. It's not like, you know, TikTok is twisting your arm and saying, watch this video. You, you can, you know, I I, I mean, I wa- I watch YouTube shorts every evening for a half an hour or so. Most of the conversations that I watch are ex- extremely eye-opening, enlightening, uh, you know, conversations around ethical topics, around, you know, things that I need to learn. I can make that choice. and And YouTube shorts now, the engine, the recommendation engine is my best ally. It's literally, it understands exactly what I like, and it's giving me amazing content to consume.
1: But I would love to ask you uh, sort of one question before we we wrap up for today, which is we can't forget that we're actually in the midst of a happiness expert as well as an AI expert. And so I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, from, from personal experience, with your experience, how or what advice would you give to our listeners on how you try to stay happy.
0: Well, I mean, if we stay within the fabric of what we spoke about so far, I'll, I'll simply say that your present and your future is a choice that you make, including your happiness, by the way, including your state of happiness. And and for some reason, uh, most of us, as uh, you know, as children, were told by someone. Uh, that unhappiness is a reasonable tax to pay for success and that success means more and matters more than happiness, whether success is defined by the amount of money you make or or the title you get to put on LinkedIn, right? Uh, The truth is you can make a better choice. The the truth is, I mean, in my work, I say happiness is algorithmic. It is really that predictable, right? You can train your brain, just like you learn to, to, to code in Python, you can train your brain to talk to you in a way that makes you happy okay and if that is true then making that choice to make you to make yourself happy as well as make yourself successful is is needed it's you know I I always tell people happiness is analogous to health right if you if you get a tiny bit of a of a, a, a sore throat you normally stop you go like hold on hold on I, I should probably take some vitamins and rest a little bit today because yeah, I could probably do more things and code a little more and fight with my colleagues a little more, but that will mean I get more sick tomorrow. I, I should probably take responsibility of my health, right? Similarly, you should take responsibility of your happiness. By the way, not because we're just a, you know a, a fun a hippie group that wants to live a happy life, but because you're actually more effective when you're happy. 37% uh, to be specific, was the Stanford research. You're 37% more productive when you're happy. Now, here's the challenge. The challenge is if I told you that, you know, uh, fitness or health is highly predictable, you'd say, yeah, I mean, if I eat healthy and go to the gym four to five times a week, I'll be healthy, right? It's that predictable. But knowing that doesn't make you fit. Did you understand this? Huh? You know, now that I told you this, you, your six packs didn't pop up. Okay, for for the six pack to to, to pop up, you you have to prioritize your fitness, you have to eat healthy, and you have to go work out, right? Similarly with happiness, if if I tell you that happiness is truly a choice followed by practice, that in itself doesn't make you happier. Hmm? But if you go to the happiness gym four to five times a week, watch a video, read a book, you know, invest in what's making you unhappy, resolve that, de-stress sometimes, uh, create better human connections, create a support circle around you, find gratitude for what's making you for the blessings you have in your life, many many practices. But if you go to the gym four to five times a week, the happiness gym, I guarantee you you'll be happy. Okay, it is that. Sadly, us humans, we've just dropped that topic altogether. We've dropped it in favor of more, uh, um, you know, more titles and more money and more cars and more dresses and more boyfriends and girlfriends, and none of it is making us happy.
2: Mo, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, There's so many other questions I'd like to dive into, particularly around the difference between sentience, consciousness, self-awareness, all of those kinds of things. Some of the physical limiting factors of AI, I had so many extra questions, but unfortunately, we've uh, run out of time and we always like to end our episodes by asking our guests a a few simple questions.
1: So Mo, maybe looking back over your career, what would be the one insight that you'd wish you'd you'd learned sooner or that you could go back and tell your younger self?
0: Uh, My career specifically is that careers are not linear. Uh, uh, That's you... Uh, you you take a long time feeling stagnant or even slowing down a little bit and then something happens and all of the skills that you've created, uh, or, you know, are, and learned over the, the stagnant, the seemingly stagnant uh, phase will pay off. Uh, so, so don't be impatient. Just show up every day and then your career will be fine.
2: And Mo, um, what are you reading or listening to at the moment? Um, Is there anything that you could recommend to our listeners? I mean, apart from your own books and podcasts, which I highly recommend, uh, of course, but is there anything else that that you would recommend?
0: I'm, I'm in a very interesting place because I'm I'm reading a lot about love and romance, uh, which is a very unusual topic for what we spoke about today. But it's been my mission. <laughs> Part of One Billion Happy was it started with explaining happiness, but then attacking the reasons for unhappiness. So Unstressable, my next book is about attacking stress so that we remove unhappiness. And then I believe that love and romance is... Uh, is quite a big issue in our world today. So I'm trying to get a, an engineer's approach to this, which is going to upset a lot of people. Other than that, I will definitely recommend uh, The Laws of Human Nature. Robert Green uh, is an incredible, incredible piece of work, uh, which I've been uh, diving in lately, which I you know, I really loved. And I would recommend my second favorite book of all time, which is uh, Happy Sexy Millionaire, if people are interested in happiness, um, Stephen Bartlett. And Stephen is, uh, I think he's now 30. When we met, he was 28. Incredibly smart, incredibly intelligent. And everything that takes me around two and a half uh, chapters to write, he writes in four pages like a tweet.
1: And we love to also ask our guests for future trends. Where do you think we may be in say a, a year's time? And are you seeing maybe a shift in the understanding of potential AI?
0: Ah, oh, that's the, why do we have to close on that? I think we are, <laughs> are squarely, squarely in what we have called a singularity. Uh, so, so, so computer scientists called, um, you know, the moment when AI becomes more intelligent than humans, we used to call that a singularity. A singularity is a, an event's horizon beyond which the rules of the game change so much that it becomes hard to predict. Uh, I I believe AI hasn't reached that point of singularity yet. As I said, my prediction is 2026, but I think there are so many other events in our world today uh, that combined are creating a very significant, uh, um, different rule book of the game, I think, between climate change, AI, uh, and the uh, geopolitical and economic challenges that the world has faced in the last year. Uh, We are in a space that requires a lot of analysis to find out what's going to happen next. I have to admit, uh, I'm not concerned as much as I'm aware that we are in a time of unprecedented change where uh, looking at the past is not going to feed you enough information to predict the future. I think uh, my advice for everyone is be more on your toes, be more aware of what's happening every day and just respond a bit like a video game rather than uh, a strategy, okay? Uh, you know, I've, I've always said that life is a video game. Life truly is a video game. And, and most gamers cannot predict what's going to happen around the corner. They just know that they have the skill set for whatever happens around the corner uh, to be dealt with. You know? so, so my big advice for people today is keep an eye open, uh, keep a bit of options in your life, and just be on your toes and dance
2: like you are in a video game. Wow, there's so many uh, so so many good quotes there. And I, I think finally, Mo, where can our listeners learn more? Where can they get the books? And where can they listen to your podcast?
0: So uh, yeah, thank you for asking that. For, first of all, if any of our listeners had a question that we didn't answer today, find me on social media. I, I answer every question I get. Mega commitment, but I really do. So. Uh, Mo underscore Gaudet is probably on Instagram, is probably the easiest to find me. So DM me and I'll answer. Uh, MoGaudet.com is where everything is available. I had uh, three books so far, uh, Solve for Happiest, Scary, Smart, and That Little Voice in Your Head, all luckily have been bestsellers. My podcast, Slow Mo, S-L-O-M-O, is uh, definitely, definitely my biggest contribution to my mission in the last couple of years uh so it's basically an invitation to slow down and ponder things that we normally don't think about and slow-mo has been in the top five in well-being in europe for quite some time now so it's been blessed with a lot of success and i think my biggest initiative for this year is unstressable so unstressable.com is an attempt to make a million to take a million people out of stress every year and get and keep them unstressed uh, going forward. So it's a very unusual take on stress. It uses analogies to physics and stressing objects and fatigue and you know, to, to understand things like burnout and anxiety and uh, you know human stress and so on.
1: Thank you so much, Mo, for taking the time to speak with us today. And thank you so much also to all of our listeners for joining us on this week's Fishy Business. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. If you have enjoyed our podcast today, please do leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you're hearing this. And feel free to follow us on our Twitter page at Mimecast if you'd like to learn more about what we discussed. Until next time.